This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries all on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME7. Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. If you would have told me in college that I would one day be sitting at a table across from Mary Ellen Mark, I, I think I would have had a, had a hard time believing you. Mary Ellen Mark, for me, when I was in college, was one of the penultimate photographers for me. I had many of her monographs, and I never got tired of looking at her work. There was just something special about the portraits she made and the stories she told with her camera that I wasn't seeing anywhere else. And throughout the years, she's always been one of my go-to people for inspiration. So recently when she was in Los Angeles for the inaugural of the Leica store here in Los Angeles, I had the opportunity to schedule an interview with her at the hotel where she was staying at. And we met over breakfast where we had the conversation that you're going to be listening to in a few minutes. It's one of those interviews where I'm so excited I, I can feel the, the nervous butterflies in, in my stomach. I was feeling them as I was driving there. But within a short order, uh, I think that uh, we just sat down and we just talked about something we have a mutual love for, which is photography. And, and if you're a fan of hers, you're in for a treat. And if you have never heard of Mary Ellen Mark, well, you're even in for an even greater treat because you're going to be introduced to one of the most amazing photographers you'll ever have the opportunity to listen to and whose work is just consistently amazes me. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Mary Ellen Mark. Well, Mary Ellen, thank you so much for making uh, time for me this morning. Um, I've been doing this show for, for seven years, and uh, I've always had a short list of people who I've wanted to be able to sit down and talk with, and you've been high on that list, so I feel very honored. Oh, well, thanks. So is it on photography, the show? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's a show that uh, just focuses primarily on photographers, and it's not so much about camera or gear or film versus digital. I like focusing more on the why, uh, the creativity. Uh, I find that that's far more interesting than anything that has to do with, with the technique. One of the reasons I, I've always resonated with your work is that... With what's left of photography, you should say that. <laughs> There's not much left of it. But one of the things that I look at your work from, from the days when I was first became aware of it into the 70s is, is, and today is there's a level of intimacy and immediacy and realness to those photographs that I think uh, persists uh, throughout the, all the years that you've been photographing. And one of the things I've always, I've always wondered was that ability to be able to draw someone out, to, to reveal themselves in that certain way, something that was very 
natural to you even before you picked up a camera? Were, were you the sort of young girl that people sort of gravitated to to sort of reveal themselves to you? Or did that start happening as a result of picking up the camera? Well, I guess I was always interested in people. You know, I mean, from the moment I started to take pictures, I knew that I wanted to photograph people, that I was interested in people. So it has always been my focus, not to pun. But anyway, uh, so I'm, I'm not shy about that. And I've always felt that the most important thing in a photograph was content. That's why, you know, I'm still an analog photographer, because I don't feel it's that the, what matters is the technology. I think what matters is the image. Mm -hmm. And there's so much stress today on, on the technology and, and not on the content and the image. It's, it's really been a major change. There was a moment when you were at the University of Pennsylvania when a photography instructor put a Leica in your hand. And you described that that moment when you physically handled that, that camera, that it was sort of a, an epiphany for you. What was it about holding the camera and the, and the potential of it that excited you so much that you felt like, this is what I'm meant to do? I think it was realizing that I could connect with people through my camera. When I first went out with it, you know, as a young photographer, how I was able to sort of enter the lives of so many, so many different human beings. That's what, and I had so many dreams of the possibilities of who I could photograph and where I could go and what I could do. You described your, your family as not necessarily being the most warm and cozy family. No, I didn't uh, have a very happy childhood, but I think, you know, sometimes that's, that is not a negative thing. That, that forces you to, you know, go out and seek, you know, other possibilities and, and to be stronger. Did you find that that photography and your ability to interact with your subjects allowed you a, that's a sort of connection and intimacy that you felt was sort of lacking anywhere? Is that why so many of your images seem to be in ways that are really familial, even with people who you really have not grown up with or, or may know in very, very personal ways? Well, I mean, I, ne I never analyze the why. It's just to try and make the image. So, I mean, I always tried to get as close as possible. And, and when I started taking pictures, um, I worked for magazines, and they were interested in that. They're no longer interested in that. Yeah, that's all changed. You got a, a Fulbright scholarship, mm -hmm. which took you to, to Turkey. Mm -hmm. And how pivotal was that? What happened during that trip? For you in terms of how you saw and how you made photographs that was so pivotal, transformational for you? Because I've not had much chance to see that work. I've seen the work well, that you did in like an award. I one. think it was the first time that I actually made powerful pictures, that I made good pictures. And some of those pictures that I made are, I still consider strong pictures today. But it, I mean, I was very strict with myself and, and went out every day to work and, you know, made myself go spend several hours on the street, because I started out really on the street. That's why I admire street photography so much, because I think the most difficult place to make pictures is on the street, because you have no planning, you don't know what to expect, and you have to really think on your feet. So, it's, and I've just made pictures, you know. And I saw what 
great possibilities there were with just yourself and a camera. Yeah. You've mentioned the word powerful. You've mentioned the word real in, in, in photographs. And I have an opinion of what that is. But for you, what, what is that? What do you see in the photograph that makes you feel like, God, this is no, a powerful... It's impossible design. to answer that. You just see something that you connect with. You know, that, that something that says to you, that could make a picture. Something that, that triggers something in you. I always feel that the most strong imagery comes out of reality. That I'm, you know, I've never been one that, that come, you know, comes to an image with a concept before. I, I don't particularly connect to those kind of images, those kind of magazine images where mm -hmm. they work around the concept of, of you know, over-costuming a person or an idea. I, I usually, although I have been forced to do those kind of things for magazines, but I prefer just to make the pictures very simple and, and to go, you know, I'm very careful about looking at a location before I photograph when I'm doing a portrait, but then just to arrive and to know something about the person, but to see what the person brings to the image, to see what, what, what they, who they are and what, what they bring to the image. That's a much stronger image than coming with some stupid idea yeah. and asking them to do something silly. It seems like you had a level of, of confidence and trust in yourself in terms of what you were able to do early on. And I think that's something that's often very elusive photographers, particularly young photographers. What was it that allowed you to have that sense of assuredness that these images were powerful, that they were effective, that they were valuable? You never have a sense of assuredness. You're always like afraid or insecure, and sometimes even terrified before you go. But you just, you know, you just have to trust yourself and trust the person that you're photographing. But at the same time, you can never, your subject can never make, you can never allow your subject to, to feel that you're afraid, because if they feel you're terrified, especially with people that are famous, they'll eat you alive. But even pe people that aren't famous, they'll eat you alive. You have to take it, when you're doing a portrait, you have to take control. But I also shoot on the street where people aren't aware of me. You have to take control there also, but in another way. Yeah. It's very interesting to see, because one of the things that you, you've said is that you're always striving for having an, an iconic image. And that you, you talk about the need to have control over what's happening with the camera and, and in front of the camera. But that those successful images cannot happen without some collaboration in part of the subject. Well, when you're shooting on the street as a fly on the wall and you're an observer, then you don't have a collaboration with the subject. It's, it's just you observing and making a picture. But when you're a participant, when your subject's a participant, then, then you, you, it is a collaboration. I don't like it. I like... When it's a collabor collaboration, I like most of the ideas that come from my subject. I don't like to come someplace with a costume in my hand and a, an idea for someone to do something stupid. I hate that. I, I just hate those kind of pictures. No. It's very much 19, like 90s magazine photography. I can't stand it. Well, let's talk about the, the images that you created for, for Streetwise, where you were following a, uh, a lot of kids who were homeless kids living out on the street, uh, I think it was in Portland, and 
those those photographs sort of speak to that idea of being immersed in a culture and immersed in a community where where you're collaborating with them in order to make these images. Some of the, some of the images sort of unguarded moments where you're sort of a, on a fly on a wall, and yet there are other images where they're very conscious of the camera for the for the, for the sake of for the sake of the portrait. So for that series, can you talk to me about striking that balance between being observant and then and then and in a other participant. Images? Right, exactly. Well, that's that's a good question because and it's also very timely for you to bring that up because Martin and I are going to go back there. We're planning to go back there. We're, we're apertures in the process of raising money for us to go back and Martin to revise, make it another film about Erin now, um, and for me to photograph her now. Um, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I do come out of working in the streets, so I can make those candid pictures. I mean, those are the hardest to make on every level, to make a, a photograph where you're an observer and you have to think so quickly and everything has to work perfectly in the frame and you're not telling someone to look this way or that way or you know, controlling them. So many of the pictures that I took on the street were those caught moments where I would just hang on the corner of Pike Street and wait for things to happen. But then there's certain pictures, like the one, the sort of iconic image of Erin, or Tiny as she was known, with the veil. It was Halloween and I saw her. She was dressed. And it was like the la that was made during what Martin was making the film. Most of the pictures that in the book were made when I went there for Life magazine to do the photographs before the film. Because when he was shooting the film, it was hard for me to make pictures at the same time. It's hard to have two cameras, a film camera and a still camera in a documentary at the same time. But it was, you know, I, for a moment he was either reloading a magazine because it was shot with film uh, or something and she was just there. And I said, hey, can you stop a second? And I just shot a few frames of her and that became an iconic image. And I, you know, it's odd to me because I don't understand why that became an iconic image. To me, it's more like a fashion picture. I mean, she was so beautiful and young and she's just there. But it did become an iconic image. It's just interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas Lily with the doll, which I think is a much tougher image, which is also made during the film, which I grabbed with my Leica momentarily. I think it's a stronger image in a sense, because here's this child on the street and she has a doll. I mean, it's just sort of more proof of her, her, how, what a baby she is. That was like a caught moment. Do you think that that... Because that, that image of Tiny has always struck with me. It does. It, people, it's become an iconic image. And for me, it's so strange. Maybe because it looks like a fashion picture, but it's not. It has all the elements, a beautiful girl, beautiful clothes. I mean, it's a costume. It was bought at a thrift shop. It's interesting to me. You don't know what's going to be iconic. You know, I, I think for me, there's a, there's a certain tension that exists in that image. Because I'm looking at it and I'm recognizing that I'm looking at a at a young girl, yet she has all these auspices of a of of a grown woman. But there's a certain discomfort between both. And then for me, as well, as, as a, as a yeah. viewer, I'm I'm it's 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 not as easy for me to relegate her to one or the other. And so, well, she a is that she's a very young girl. She was the 13 or 14 years old. But on the other hand, she was a woman because she was, you know, she had sold herself, you know, 
to men since she was like much, much younger than that. So she's at, in, she's in a very, you know, in-between position, you know, in life. She does, in a way, carry herself like a woman, even though she's a child. You've been in a relationship with her for... For years. For years now, and that's... And, that's, and we're very much looking forward to going back. And that's, and that's something that's unusual for me to hear about. Well, I stay in contact with the people I, I photograph. I've stayed in contact also with the family that lived in a car, which was a story that I did for Life magazine. I also eventually, when the time is right, I want to go back there. And unfortunately, the mother in that family recently passed away, but um, I've stayed in contact with that family too. I like to stay in contact with people. I mean, I think it's fascinating to see how people change and over years and, and, you know, to document that. I, I just, that's very interesting to me. And you know them and, and you can see, see them change. The boy is in jail, he's in prison. He'll be out in a couple of years. But, um, you know, it's interesting. It is to, to see people's lives evolve. But when I hear you, when I hear you share that, part of me goes, you're not just doing it because of what it provides you as a photographer. It seems like there's something inside of you that has a strong desire or is impulsive need to stay jacked in to the people whose lives, to people whose lives have, they've opened up their lives to you. And, and, well, I feel and then, I owe them some, I mean, they've given me so much. I feel I owe them something. I do owe them everything. And life's not fair. We all know that. And, you know, I guess I want, I've always been interested in documenting the lives of those that haven't had the opportunities that they should have. You know, the equal opportunities for everything, you know, that they should have. So, it, it, it's, it, you know. But, but, but I also do, I mean, I do do some commercial work. I work for films. Uh, which is, you know, the most interesting way of doing commercial work because that's been very fortunate for me. I've had the opportunity to see great, you know, film directors and lighting cameramen work, and I've learned a lot from that. Why do you care? I mean, you photograph... I know that not all your photographs have to deal with people on the fringes. Have to do with what? I'm sorry. People on the fringes, on the periphery. No, they don't. They don't, but I... But... I wonder why you choose to photograph people along those lines. Because I know that I know photographers who choose to do it because of, to be quite frank, very selfish reasons, but because they think it's great fodder for photographs that because it makes good photographs. Because it makes good photographs, and and you have always struck me as someone who's not doing that with that well, intent in mind. Well, I mean, mind. not all of that can make good photographs because I mean it can be very much a cliche, also. It can be, you know, I mean, I know there's a, a very good photography teacher who teaches at, at Columbia named Tom Roma. He's an excellent teacher, I think one of the very best. And he has certain rules for his students, and they're not allowed to photograph that. And I absolutely understand that. And he's right, because he doesn't want them to, pho to photograph cliches. It's very easy for students to go out and photograph, you know, cliches. And so he has a list of rules that they're not allowed to go near. And, and I can see, uh, that's good reason. And uh, some of 
his students have taken the workshops that I teach, and they've been among the most interesting young photographers that I've, I've worked with. But, you know, I, I think I just, you know, I don't know, I've been fortunate in meeting people like Erin, whose life is, you know, she's very open. You know, and when you're photographing a person in their life, it's almost like casting a film. We're doing a documentary on somebody. It's like casting a film because you're looking for someone who's very open to the camera and will give you access to their lives. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Last year I had this incredible assignment from, uh, actually it was from a pharmaceutical company, it was from Novartis, and I, I traveled around the world and I picked the subject, I photographed children a lot, so I picked the subject on, on um, pediatric medicine. And actually Martin Bell, my husband, uh, made six films and I, I, went to eight, I went to eight countries and photographed um, children in medicine. It was really interesting, but I looked for the same thing. I mean, I looked for people to photograph that I felt had a certain openness to the camera. And it's something you, you get used to. You, you, after you've photographed for as many years as I have, and you've met people like Tiny or subjects like the, the Dam family who lived in their car, and you, you know, the, you know the, the subjects that will allow you into their lives. You, you, you can almost smell them, you see them, and you go to them. I had an opportunity to do, for the first time in commercial work, this was a commercial assignment, to do pictures that I thought would be part of my body of work. You know, that would, because when I'm working for a film company, I'm very realistic about it. Because it's like photographing in a museum. I'm photographing somebody else's work. I'm photographing the work of a great director, and who's, it's his story, he's costumed it, I'm documenting it, but it's least like going into a museum and trying to do justice to somebody else's work. It's not my work, and I never think it is. So in this sense, this was an assignment that could be my work, and so I was able to really, you know, take pictures that were good enough to be my own work and on and a commercial assignment, and that's unusual. Usually people are very domineering and tell you what they want and what to do. Yeah. And, and in the past with magazines, I've been able to turn some of those assignments into my own work. That's no longer possible. That's all changed. That's different. Magazines don't do documentary work anymore. I'm not working for magazines anymore, hardly ever. I mean, you don't see my work for magazines. They've all become much, much more commercial. Most more illustration. They're interested more in photo illustration. You do a lot of unit photography work for motion pictures. It, it, I, I, I do. Well, I work for film companies, and I teach. teach in Mexico and in Iceland, and I'd like lecture. And, and, and I'm trying to, to, you know, to, to, to do more commercial work so I can do my own work. But as far as magazines, they just stopped assigned me because they don't do the kind of work I do. They really want more photo illustration. Does that get angry? I mean, I can imagine. It does. Because I worked so hard for them. I worked so hard for so many years and then suddenly because I don't fit into that, the framework of being an illustrator, you know, that they're not interested in, in what I do anymore. Yeah. Of course it makes me angry, you know, but, yes, but you know, I don't look at magazines anymore anyway. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. 
Now, if you have a website today, it has to look good on more than just a computer screen. It has to look good on a tablet, on a phone, because the reality of today's world is that many people are scouring the web and looking at people's websites, not on a computer, but on a tablet and, and a phone. And Squarespace gives your website user the best mobile experience possible because Squarespace has developed new templates that are mobile ready. They have these responsive designs, which means your site automatically restructures to look great on any brand of smartphone, tablet, or computer. When you add an image to your site, seven different versions are created so the correct size loads for the device. So your site looks professionally designed no matter how it's viewed. But you can discover this for yourself by taking advantage of the free trial by visiting squarespace.com forward slash candid frame and sign up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code candid frame seven and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code candid frame seven. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. You know, I, I look at your work, and it's it, there's a consistency of just just amazing, beautiful, stunning work. That but they're not interested me. in reality. I worked for the New Yorker for 25 years. They don't call me anymore. They're just not interested in what I do. They want illustration. So, so do you think that makes me angry? It hurts me deeply. So how do you sort of keep from being sort of overwhelmed by that that frustration because here you are you're making work you feel like this work deserves a voice this this work deserves eyes looking at it because not just because you are a famous photographer but because the work itself has a value how do you how do you keep from being so overwhelmed despondent depressed about here you are putting all this but you know in this it does it makes me want to go on and just do greater work and just you know it just does because if I saw you know they're not doing the kind of work I do anymore that's just the way it is I'm not an illustrator and I don't want to be an illustrator mm -hmm. I want to do work that has strong content how has this sort of pressure you know the the finite outlets for your work and the limits of the marketplace how has that influenced or changed how you shoot who you shoot the choices it hasn't it hasn't it's not going to change that i won't let it change and that's part of the problem is that i'm like a stubborn person so i'm not going to because because my the way i work you know it's like someone trying to force me to become a digital photographer because that's what people want. It's not going to do that. I, you know, and it's not that I'm against digital work. I think it can be beautiful. It's just that I've worked in analog for so long, and it's the way my work looks. You know, it, it's, I love silver gelatin prints, I, and I, I love what film does. Why should I, at this point in my life, be forced because of because of the media to, to change. I don't, well, I can still get film. It's kind of a drag, like talking my way through custom, to immigration, you know, don't x-ray my film and, and begging them. No. But, but I'll do that, you know. I, it's just, 
I'm not against, I'm not against, and most of the students, my students all shoot digitally, which is fine. It's just that I, I want to be who I am, and I'm not going to change what, what I do and, and try and, you know, over Photoshop my work and change everything just because it's, it's, it's um, just because it's, it's, it's the way people, you know, just because it's what magazines want now. Yeah. And if they don't call me, then they don't call me. That's fine. I'm fine with it. You, you work with a lot of students that you mentioned in your, in your workshops. Yeah. Uh, you have the workshop in Oaxaca and, and, and elsewhere. And when you see a body of work that really excites you, what, what is it that you're, you're seeing in terms of not just the physical prints, but in terms of maybe the mindset that some of these young photographers have that make you, that get you really what, what, In original work? Yeah. If it's original, I, when I see, I mean, in Oaxaca, I've had a couple of students that are really amazing. I had, I mean, I've given a couple of, of scholarships to some Mexican students that couldn't afford to take the workshop. Because the students I have come from all over the world, um, a, from, a lot from the States. It's expense, you know, it's, and a lot from Mexico, they can't afford the workshop. So I've made it a point to look at work from Mexican students at each time I teach a class to, to give a few scholarships to Mexican students. And last, um, last class I gave scholarships to two young Mexican photographers who are both fantastic. And why were they fantastic? They both shot digitally, by the way. They were digital photographers. Uh, what was fantastic about them was they were just great photographers. And their work was original, um, powerful. They were very young. They were in their 20s. And it was just great work. And then I'll try and help them, too. You know, I tried to connect them with, with other people. And they're going to have a show in Oaxaca now at the, at the museum, at, the, at this beautiful gallery where we teach. And, you know, I try and help, help young people that I think are great. I think it's much, going to be much harder for them than it was for me because, you know, when I started out, there was really a place for, for you know, reality photography or documentary mm -hmm. photography. That they could get it published in magazines, but now it's just much, much more difficult. And you know, as far as you know, I, I also sell my prints. That's partially how I live. I have, I have you know shows, and I sell my work. But it, it's also complicated and, and difficult now. But I mean, I owe a lot to magazines because they were my grants for so many years. That you know, I would suggest stories. I mean, I just saw something on on CNN this morning, I thought, oh, that would make a great story. And then I thought, what, what am I even thinking of that for? No one would do it. But, you know, um, so I owe magazines a lot. The fact that they don't, they're not interested in what I do anymore, it's just, I think if it's their loss. Yeah. You know, I, you know it's just, but it's the way it is. When um, you first went to the, uh, the look offices, you met Paul Fusco. And to, to look? Yeah, to look oh, that, yeah. Okay. And Paul Fusco looked at your work yeah. and he was like, he was really struck by it. And when you think back at that time, what do you think he was seeing in your work that resonated so much in him? I mean, because here you are, a fairly young photographer. You don't have a lot of experience underneath your belt, but he, he was accomplished in his own right. And he looked at that portfolio of images that you made and he saw something there. And in retrospect, when you look back at it, 
What was it in those images that you I mean, maybe he saw, I mean, because I think I'm better now than I was then, although I had taken a few good images then, like the ones in Turkey. I think he must have seen the passion and how much, how much I loved, loved photography and, and how, what it meant to me. He must have seen that. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, I think now, sometimes I feel I just can't shoot. I'm just so, you know, discouraged by what, what's happened to, you know, the world of documentary photography. I mean, and I, I know some great documentary photographers, great. And I think we all feel the same way, like, where do we go? And so it's not just myself. I'm not the only, like, documentary photographer. There's some fantastic ones. But, um, I don't know, it's, it, and it's not going to change. It's, it's, oh, it'll change. It's not going to change. It's the, way, it's the way the world is. It's the way magazines are. They don't, they just don't want to deal with a certain reality anymore. I mean, they, they'll publish War and Disaster, you know, and I think war photography is another thing. I've never done it. I admire people that are able to do it. They're very brave and great. For some great photographers do it, but it's not what... I do, or other people that I know do, but they won't publish the, the other kinds of stories. Them. They just won't. They're just not interested. They don't want to spend the money, and they're just not interested. Yeah. They're not interested. Your, your, your series on the twins and the proms were really interesting to me because they were... I looked at those pictures, and I felt like, I know these people. Like what? I looked at those pictures and I go, I know these people. I felt, I felt that you, even, even though the setup was very simple. with It was just know, right, but it was interesting using that camera. I love that camera. I'd like to do something else with that camera. It's very expensive to use that camera, the problem is. And you can explain what the camera was. For well, I shot with, it, with a 20 by 24 Polaroid. And I've been working with that camera for about 20 years. You don't own the camera, you have to rent the camera. It, it's, it's, um, and it's, it's, there's only about five of them in the world. There's, uh, like three in the States and two in Europe. One in Amsterdam and one in Prague, I think. But you have to rent it. And Polaroid doesn't make the film anymore. So it's made, in, in, in the States, it's made by John Ruder. And it, it's just a fantastic camera. But, you know, since no one's calling me for magazines anymore, I can't, you know, I can't find an excuse to use it. But I will. I have, I'm trying to work something out now to, to use it again, which will be for a big project, which I hope will work out. But, but you need to have financial backing to work with it, except with I, all the money I saved, I spent on prom and, and, and twins. I paid for those myself. Although, um, so I did a book. And I did, with both of them, we, we, we did two books. And then Martin made two films that, that went with it. And, and the idea of the big camera f with twins was to show not so much the similarities, but the differences. I mean, it's, it's like looking at something so close, because the camera's so big, mm -hmm. that, that you see every single detail. And it's a beautiful, beautiful camera. And it was, it was like looking at the differences in twins that look so much alike, yet they're really different. So there have been several people that have done projects on twins since then and before. So it's a very popular subject, twins, just because it's such a strange phenomenon to have two people that look exactly alike. But it was really, it was an interesting thing to work on. And then with prom, it, it was, the idea was, it was 
to look at, uh, look across America, because I like photographing teenagers at, at, at the sort of, at, at, at different classes. And you, you see that more in the film, the, the, how those that have and have not. Because it's a great neutralizer, the prom itself. Everyone looks beautiful. Whether you have money or you don't have money, your dress, you know, the families go all out to have the most beautiful dress in the world. And, and, and yet, the, the differences, and you really see it more in, in Martin's film, the, the difference between the hopes and dreams of, of, of the, the kids that come from that go to the very fancy private schools and the kids that, that, that don't. And, and it, was, it was really touching. What was really surprising to me, and, and very touching actually, was the optimism of all the kids. Incredible optimism. It was really interesting. We did uh, two schools in Los Angeles. We did Harvard Westlake, which is a very good private school. And they were very, and it, it's a very good school. And the kids were very bright and 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 had a you know a very positive outlook on life. I wanted one really good private school, and, and that's that's the one that I did. And then we did uh, Poly High, which is a big mixture of of kids. And then um, then in 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 New York, I did uh, I did a Catholic private school, but it's not an expensive expensive school the way Harvard Westlake. And I, I was turned down at Sacred Heart. I wanted to do Sacred Heart, which is another very fancy private school, Catholic school in New York. But then I, the other private schools in New York, prom is not a big deal. You know, they're so, so sort of above it all. They all just wear jeans. But, you know, Harvard Westlake, it's Los Angeles. It's, you know, Hollywood. And everyone got all dressed up. But the school was very helpful. And it was, it was, it was a great school. And then I did, in, one of my favorite schools was Malcolm X Shabazz, which is a school in Newark, which is um, absolutely 100% African-American. And, and only, uh, you know, a large portion of the kids drop out. So the kids that, that stay are the kids that are really special, the kids that are graduating. It really meant so much to them. And I'd say that they were like, they were so well behaved because the prom meant so much to them. Whereas another school in New York, which I'm not going to tell you which one, which was a huge mixed high school, there were more police there than there were kids because the year before they had destroyed uh, the, their, their prom room at the Waldorf. So they, they had prom in a different place. But, but Malcolm X, they were so well behaved. And their dresses were amazing because they have like a, a fashion show and they each get their private person that de designs their dress. And so this, that was an incredible prom. When I think about that process, the whole dynamic that exists between you and the subject as compared when you're shooting with a 35 millimeter Leica. It was different. Well. It was different. And it was with a big camera like that. And it was, we had to ask a lot of the kids because they had to give up some of their prom time to come and be interviewed uh, for the film and to have their picture taken. But um, it's a different dynamic. The portrait, and you know, I think had I wanted to do this as a 35 millimeter photographer, I would have had more trouble with the, with the high schools, with the schools, because a lot of kids, are, I don't know, they get high or whatever at the prom, and they would have been afraid I would have been in the bathroom photographing them. You know, so when there was a big camera, it's all evidence. What I'm doing. So the high schools were. In the beginning, it was very hard getting access, but after the first year that we did it, I had something to show, and it was easier. Yeah. 
So what's what's next for you? What are you hoping? Well, to- I mean, I think the next thing. Well, I'm, I'd love to do the thing I did on healthcare really turned me around, and I'd love to do more healthcare projects. I would really love to do that. It was the thing for Novartis was an incredible experience. It was just incredible. We did actually one of the things we did was here in Los Angeles at Children's Hospital, uh, the SCUSC, the one in on Vermont. Yeah, and it was amazing. I mean, we did the oncology. Um, ward and Dr. Stuart Siegel is he's the head of, of the hospital of, um, uh, of that section of the hospital and I've worked with him a lot on different health care stories on, on children's oncology and he's hematology oncology and Martin made a beautiful film about a little girl named Yoseline and and um, that was an incredible. I'm actually going to show that film when I'm giving a talk this Friday at, at the at the Leica thing. Oh, okay. Are you going to come? You're welcome to yeah, come. Yeah, I, I look forward but, to um, it. And then I did photographs, and that was an incredible experience. It was great. And that's a great hospital. Do you know that? I've been in that hospital. I haven't been there, but I it know. It's amazing. But that, the experience there and, and, and of going around the world and do working with and healthcare, especially with children healthcare. It did turn me around. I'd love to do more work with that. So but we are gonna go back and we're gonna work more with, with Aaron in Seattle. So I'll do that and hopefully I can more more healthcare stories. Hopefully I'd like to do that. I just have to find out ways and means to do it because I can't call anymore like Life magazine or there's no more life or a magazine or the New Yorker because that's not the kind of stories they're doing. And say, can you? I'd love to do this story or that story. Can you, you know, can I do it? So I just have to. My big deal now is trying figuring out how to fund because I'm not independently rich. So I have to find out how to figure out how to do it. And I like working with my husband. I mean, he's a wonderful filmmaker. So it, it, we we work well together. So and, and what's that relationship meant to you? Because you collaborated on. Well, and it's good because we work together and independently. We just did a a small film for the Honickman Foundation in Philadelphia on um, a learning center for uh, uh, Lynn and Harold Honickman. Just they well, ten years ago they built a school uh, in in connection with Project Home, uh, which is uh, uh, Sister Mary Mary's. Scullion has this incredible project in Philadelphia. And, um, and so they built this beautiful learning center for kids to, to get a better education, to come after school. And their parents go and get GEDs in the morning, and then the kids come after school. And it starts at kindergarten, and it goes through. And Martin made, it's just going to be a seven-minute film about that. And then I'd, I just did portraits of the kids, because it wasn't, we were only there for a couple of weeks, and it wasn't the type of thing that, Visually, I had the time to really do, but the portraits are nice. They're very nice. So, so that was like a foundation work. It was really interesting. I, I enjoyed it. It's an incredible place, and the kids were amazing. So they're all uh, all uh, African American and Puerto Rican kids, and gives them a ch- the big the big goal is to get them all into college so they can have an equal opportunity and justice for all. Well, my last question that I ask each of my guests is that I asked them to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. 
and it can be any photographer, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? There's a photographer that was a student of mine in Oaxaca who's a really hardworking, lovely young man. And his name is James Carbone. And he, he's been photographing a family in Oaxaca for 15 years. And he comes back all the time to photograph him. And he works for a paper in Pasadena. His name is James Carbone. And I think and not only is he a fine photographer, it would be great for him. And he's here. Oh, great. You know, he's a lovely person, and, and his work is beautiful. He became a great photographer. When I first met him, he was just beginning. I think he'd be, I mean, he could talk to you about the struggles of a, he's, he's, he's in his 40s. The struggles of a young photographer, you know, working in, in Los Angeles, mm. you so, know. And where can people go to find out more about you and all your work? Well, you go to my website. It's just uh, maryellenmark.com. Yeah. Well, Mary Ellen, thank you. Well, they you come so to much. my workshop in Oaxaca or in Iceland, but they'll, they'll find that on my website. Yeah, and I'll put, and I'll put links okay, on that great. on the blog as well. Okay, but Mary Ellen, thank you so much. It's been yeah. a real pleasure and an honor to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at The Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal. A link for that you'll find at the CandidFrame.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.